Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I welcome Terry Harrington as an inspiring example of a third quarter rethink. After a successful 40-year career in the law, Terry has sold her business and gone back to school to think about what she wants to do next. She's spending a term in the inaugural promotion of the University of Colorado at Denver's Changemakers program. As a lawyer, her specialization was in family law, mediation, conflict, coaching, and divorce. She spent her life devoted to fighting injustices of all kinds, learned through her struggles to use mediation to calm conflicts, and is likely to continue this red line into her next chapter. After the program, she's planning to invest some of her considerable energies and talents on an initiative focused on racial inequities. By involving white women, you can't help but be excited when you listen to her persistent passion for peace building in conflictual contexts. So today on Four Quarter Lives, I'm delighted to welcome Terry Harrington. Terry, hello. Hello. Where are we talking to you from? I'm in Denver, Colorado. Okay, and we're talking from London, and that's a great place to start. You've had a really long and successful career in and around Denver and the U.S. Why Why are you back at school? Why now? You know, when you reach your 60s, at least for me and many of my friends, you start to think about how might your life change as you get older? Where do you want to focus? Do you want to live closer to family, either siblings and or children and grandchildren? So I was really struggling and, you know, my brain was kind of going all over. I was doing things like, you know, searching apartments and Airbnbs near my grandchildren I was thinking about, you know, my family farm in Nebraska, where all three of my sisters live. My brain just started to go crazy with the options. And where and I, where were you based and where were you? Because I think this is a huge issue. I mean, geography, particularly in huge countries, even more than what we can see here in Europe, is such a major decision variable. So what kind of spread were you looking at geographically? Well, I grew up in the middle of Nebraska, which is fairly close, six hours from Denver, and then moved to Denver to go to law school, and I established my career and my business here. My son, I have one son who moved to Minneapolis with his wife and now has two little grandchildren. So that's not far. Within a a flight of an hour and a half, I can be there. That's not too bad. So how did you choose this particular program, which is called Changemakers at UC Denver, one of the now 13 midlife transition programs on offer around the world? It's just launching. So how did you find it and why did you choose it? Yes, I'm in its inaugural class and I had never heard of a class like this. I think it came across, you know, my Facebook or something like that. And I saw it and I jumped on it within 10 minutes and had paid for it. Oh, wow. uh, I just knew when I focus throughout my life, when I focus on myself, which is not often done unless I'm in therapy or working with an expert on something that is about me. My thoughts don't get very organized, don't focus and, and then come to a solution if I'm, you know, kind of exploring the unknown. And so I knew that a class would help me understand the options and, and think about who I am, what I want. And those things sound simple, but to me, it wasn't that simple. And this class does help me focus lots of different ways 
to make me think, make me read, make me learn. And I love it. So basically, you were in this maze of questions and confusion. You saw there's a short description of the program. What what hit? What resonated? What made you say, OK, I'm in? You know, anytime you use the word transition or thinking about retirement or retirement, those were the triggers. Yeah. And it was right in your back door, really. Yes. I knew of no other program. I'd never heard of anything like it. So, yes, it was right in Denver. So can you tell us a bit about it? What How's it structured? How many people are on it? What kind of career profiles or backgrounds are you meeting? Yes, there are 18 in our class. There are everything from teachers, widows, people divorcing, engineers, uh, uh, let's see, artists, all kinds of people. People newly married in, you know, this stage of life. Late love. Uh, So it's really interesting. Very, yes, late love. Okay, that sounds perfect. So wonderful people, very educated CPAs that have worked on huge mergers, you know, very educated and thoughtful people, kind, caring. And I do think it is something that is a challenge for a professor or a teacher to teach people at this stage of life. I think we're all pretty opinionated. We all think we know better. And I'm honored that I have such a brave professor because she has had to deal with quite a bit of feedback and thoughts. And, you know, it's not like a a college class where some of the kids are a little intimidated. <laughs> they're they're hard charging people. Yeah, I mean, in my program, we, we found very much there was some faculty who absolutely loved the uh, senior experience, richness in the room, and others who were really quite intimidated and really just wanted to do their regular thing and more didn't want to. Yeah. Anything to do with all these high powered voices in the room. Right. What's the gender balance on the program? Are you. There are six men and the remainder are women. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's what we often find, too, is that uh, women are slightly more attracted to this program. So which brings me logically to my next kind of question. When did you start to think about what you might do when you came towards the end of your first career, main career, whatever you might want to call it? And that there might be several more decades of active, healthy life still ahead. When did that first? Yes, I am still practicing law, still representing clients, but not litigating. And I'm still mediating and helping divorcing couples resolve their differences. So I have shifted from, you know, in my 50s, actually litigating cases and going to court to trying to find ways to resolve differences without going to court. And I pretty much dedicated my career to not going to court, although I still did, but trying to educate myself starting in 1997 in my 40s, trying to figure out how I could help couples in a better way so they had less anger, less less emotional damage, the children had less emotional damage. I had a very significant event in my life during a trial where I realized that how I behaved in the trial had a great impact on the family. And after that trial, I did a 180 and decided I needed to stop litigating for six months, take mediation training and dedicate myself to make up for some of the things I did as a litigator. Interesting. I think you should write a book about that. I think that's... um... Yes. Well, there are lots of great books about it. Collaborative law is one of the big ways that divorce attorneys can shift paradigms. Yeah. to be more problem-solving versus fighting and adversarial. I think, I think your personal narrative of how one day in court you came to this realization would be a very powerful model. 
Yes. So right. for some people, what they do in their future is very influenced by who they've been, the kind of experiences you're describing. For others, it's an opportunity to turn into completely new directions. Do you have any clear sense or not yet of what your future direction might be? Pretty early on in this class, maybe the, and we're about a third of the way through, I realized I have it all and I have it very, very good. I sold my business. I started a a family law firm, although it didn't start as family law, but I started a law firm in 1987. I bought a building to house the law firm, which is an old house in 1991. And both things went very well. Uh, Good investments, good, you know, even though I didn't know what I was doing and made plenty of mistakes in the 80s, I, you know, developed a very successful, you know, women only law firm. We did try and hire one man one time and that didn't work out, but we did just hire one this year. So I'm pretty excited. A little gender balance in the other direction. Yes. Yes. Anyway, I had two young partners join me in the last 10 years and we sold half the business and half the building to them a couple years ago. And then just in January this year, we sold the remainder of the building and the remainder of the law firm to them. So I no longer have to worry about whether the furnace is going out or the sewers backing up or the roof needs replacing. And I don't need to worry about whether an employee is doing their job or (laughs) at all. You're free. This was a really natural, big transition moment. Yes. And this was my baby. So I was worried. I was really going to have a hard time with it, but I didn't at all. It felt like a relief. I feel like I can give to the firm as much as I want. I can work as much as I want. I can be paid for the work I do. If I choose to take a lot of time off, I can. Nobody's looking over my shoulder at all. I have lots of staff that have been with me for 20 years. It's really a a very, and we're all friends. We all go to our kids' birthday parties and, you know, Celebrate. That's a wonderful, a wonderful organization and practice and life that you, yeah. you've yeah. been planning this transition for a long, long time, obviously. This was obviously yeah. your strategy and your end game. Well, I think for the last 10 years I have. I, I don't think 10 years ago I would have said I would have sold the building and sold the business to anyone. But yes, it's been developing and as you get older, you start to think of things like this. And it worked out really well. I'm I'm so grateful. But then I also realized the other part of my life is I can go see my grandkids as much as I want. I just rented a beach house and we're going to go in May. And I'm excited about that. And I want to continue some annual traditions. I have a family farm where my three sisters and their families still live in Nebraska. And my older little four-year-old granddaughter loves to ride horses and get chicken eggs. And, you know, so there are lots of things I can kind of weave together. And so I'm very lucky. I think compared to most of the people in my class, they either haven't had businesses of their own and, or maybe some have, but some still need to work and still need to make money. I have been very conservative, you know, in my life financially. So I've saved lots of money and I'm, I'm comfortable financially, which a, a lot of people in my class are not. Can I ask you how old you are? Would you share um, at what stage? Because this sounds now like a, a, a time of complete freedom. And I'm wondering what you're imagining for. Is the future clear? Do you know where you're headed or are you still exploring? I'm still exploring. You know, my 
one of my financial planners says, well, you know, Terry, there are three stages of retirement. The first stage is go, go. The second one is slow, go. And the last one is no, go. <laughs> um, so I think I'm in the go, go stage. I don't know necessarily what the slow, go stage looks like. I don't think I have to decide. I think as I evolve and as I move forward, I will find what I need to enjoy the slow go and the no go. I've always told my son, listen, if you think I need to be put in a home or some other kind of care, you do it. No matter what I say, don't feel an ounce of guilt and understand I will go to that place and make the best life I've ever had and make everybody laugh. <laughs> so don't you dare hesitate. If you if it crosses your mind, you do it no matter what I say. You're a good mom. That's the way. You're a good mom. I wish more moms would have that awareness really off the bat. So let me just dig a little bit more. I'm curious. So is your idea, you're in this beautifully privileged position. You've got a law firm. You can keep I mean, are you thinking of if you do anything work-wise, it would be a tail end still with your existing firm? Or are you envisaging any new, entirely new roads, activities, or continuity just with the rituals and family that you've got? Yeah. Uh, you know, clearly my family is at the top of my list. I mean, I don't think I would be able to go forward in my life in a good manner if I didn't have close connections there. So that's at the top of my list. I think I can let the law firm go, although the friendships are strong and, and that would be hard too. It's almost like another family. But as far as representing clients, there are stages I can take. I can stop representing clients entirely. I can just do mediation. There are two levels of mediation. Mediating with clients that have attorneys is easier than mediating with couples that don't have attorneys because if they don't have attorneys, I do tons of educating, tons of help, tons of hands-on getting them through. If they have attorneys, they come to me and they're already pretty educated and they have somebody to turn to besides me. So I can, I can stay, I can stop representing clients and then at some point stop you know, mediating for people without attorneys and then just do mediation for people with attorneys. But you're not, for example, thinking of starting an ice cream company or going to Paris, <laughs> going to Paris for five years or reinventing yourself into a new business that you've always dreamt of side hustling into? Those thoughts have crossed my mind. <laughs> I would love to, you know, live on a beach and have my feet in the sand every day. However, that isn't where my friends in my life is, nor my family. But I realized that there's something I've wanted to do my entire life that I didn't know how to do or what to do about it. And that's to fight racism. And I recently came into contact with a Denver nonprofit called Race to Dinner. And it's a couple of women from Denver who have started educating white women on their white supremacy and the ways they can shift racism. They pretty much say that, you know, white men, if they would have really cared about fixing racism, would have already done it. Yeah. And it's now time for the white women to stop being quiet, stop being nice, stop being polite, and start calling it out and doing something about it. So that is my, that's my goal. I'm hosting a dinner for eight white women and the two owners of this nonprofit in June. And I'm really looking forward to that. In end of April, I finish this class, which is two nights a week. And then I am going to focus on how I can assist that 
program and, you know, brown and black people. Fantastic. Is that a national initiative or a local one? Is it linked? It's a local one, but they are getting, you know, they've been on everything from, you know, interviewed by national news organizations, John Stewart, you know, Dr. Phil, they're, they're really getting a lot of press. They, it's a pretty confrontive, the, the book they wrote is called White Women. Oh, I like it. Yeah. White Women, what you don't know about your own white supremacy and what you can do about it. Fantastic. That's yeah, nice. so that's that's my baby. And I haven't I, I told myself I wanted to focus on this class first. When it's done, then they're going to get me full bore. <laughs> OK, watch the space. And I'm very curious to hear more about the background. So my next I'm going to dig around a little bit in your past to find out what might have led you there. You know, this podcast is called Four Quarter Lives. So, so backstories often explain a lot of these kinds of late life interests. Can we start with your first quarter? What's your family background, education influences? What role all this played in who you became? And, and was there any awareness of racism in, the, in Q1 or did that come much later? Very good question. I grew up on a large farm in the middle of Nebraska, corn, soybeans, cattle, hogs, and I was the oldest of four daughters. So this is a fully irrigated farm of 2,000 acres. Wow. <laughs> in, in Nebraska, that's pretty large. I mean, there are ranches that are not irrigated and that, you know, for many, many acres. But, you know, if you have irrigated farm ground, that's a lot of work. So my father was basically when we turned 10 or 11, we were driving big trucks and tractors and carrying calves and castrating hogs and doing a lot of scooping of things that didn't smell the best and very, very hard work. He did not abide sitting down, reading books or anything like that, or resting or eating a nice slow meal. None of that. It was urgent. It was go, go, go every second of the day. And my only reprieve was school and then athletics. Wow. So he was pretty critical, very demanding. It wasn't easy. And I, as the oldest daughter, believed I needed to keep things calm, do as much as I could to keep dad happy, which was never easy and maybe impossible. And I desperately wanted to leave the farm as fast as I could. Now, the racism piece came in with my grandmother, my father's mother. Her husband was killed in a car wreck when my dad was in college in Nebraska. And my dad came back to run the farm. The farm was not in the family when my dad was growing up. So at age 19, he had to learn how to farm. My grandfather's family lost the farm in the Depression, and then my grandfather got it back. But my grandmother, once her husband died, all of a sudden became very active in the Methodist Church. She was a national president of the women's section of the Methodist Church, and she was on a world board of global ministries fighting hunger. And she flew all over the world and worked on hunger and poverty. She helped start the first black radio station in Omaha, Nebraska. And taught us from the very beginning how important it was to, to see brown and black people as people, as equals, and then to do everything we could to help others see that also. Fantastic. So right, right from the get-go, you were well-educated in this space. How interesting. 
Yeah. One of the very few, I think, in at least farm, white farm country yep. in Nebraska. I, there was one black family in our in our tiny town that where the father was a, a mechanic and he was very well respected. But I am sure they did not have an easy life and they didn't stick around very long. So how old were you when you managed to get off the farm? And Oh, 18 years old. 18 years old. And off you went. I left. I left the day after high school graduation. My sisters are very sad. And I think my parents were too. I I just, it was not for me. It wasn't intellectually stimulating enough. I often felt angry that my father would leave me on the tractor for 14 hours without checking on me. You know, I could go on and on. But I knew that there were other things I wanted to do in my life than scoop you know, poop and <laughs> you can and, use the right words. It's okay. <laughs> yep. You know, chase, chase animals and drive tractors. Yep. My sisters <laughs> love it. They all are there. They, they all, all still do it. They all stay. They love it. They wouldn't you're, change you're, it. From you're there. really the, the family misfit. You're the outlier. How did that play out in life then? When you turned 25 and headed into Q2, who were you? So, you know, I went to college at the University of Nebraska and then decided to go to law school after college. So at 22, I decided to move to Denver after getting accepted to Denver University Law School. And I was thrilled to be moving somewhere to learn something new and to actually get away from my family. (laughs) And my father decided to follow me. I enrolled in law school and he decides to come and he goes, I'm going to live in your basement. I said, Dad, you are not living in my basement. He missed you. (laughs) So, yeah, my parents followed me to Denver. They got their divorce the first year of law school. My dad was suicidal. I was trying to keep him alive and help my mother. She got breast cancer. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I, I have been the parental figure for my parents, you know, and I knew I had to. It was a crazy place to grow up. I believe my parents loved me and cared for me and wanted the best for me. They were both really hard workers, both both very intelligent, but I wanted to not live with them or near them. But that didn't work out that way. They stayed in Denver. They obviously imprinted your life in many ways since you also became a divorce lawyer. So yes, yes. (laughs) they taught you they taught you how to live or how not to live or how to fix them. And I, you know, when I started my career, you know, you start law school at 22 and then you ended at 25. Uh, I was very lucky to have had a clerkship with the judge and was able to work in the courthouse all day long and then go to night school. It was the, the best experience. I would actually, through the student law office at law school, try jury trials during work. I would represent people charged with drunk driving and, you know, pick juries and then go back to work. A passion, <laughs> I, uh, real passion. You it was one. found your place. It was the best experience. You do not learn how to become a lawyer in law school at all. Not even close. You learn what the law was in 1812, yeah. but you don't learn how to be a lawyer. But I learned and I was very grateful for that experience. Anyway, I started my career as a public defender. I represented poor people for five years. I got really good at trial, and that's what I wanted to be, was a great trial attorney. Very stressful. I had a baby, little baby boy, eventually got a divorce, opened my own law firm, 
hung out a shingle, did criminal defense, decided I wanted to represent injured people. So then I became a personal injury attorney and got very into representing clients who had been injured. And then all of that just started to be a lot. Like the trials were weeks or months long. I wasn't enjoying life very much. So I did get my first divorce. And then somehow I decided to take one divorce case. And then both sides, after that case was over, started referring me everybody they knew. And my practice turned, just like rabbits grew, turned into a divorce practice without me even intending it to be. But I realized the trials were shorter and, you know, more limited in scope. And I didn't have to pay for these experts that my injured clients couldn't pay for. So it was perfect. And then I really did figure out that that's where my heart was in helping children and helping people suffering and in pain. And uh, it's worked really well. So I can't resist before we leave this chapter to, to what's the secret to a good divorce? The secret to a good divorce is to get therapy as soon as you can, to not launch into a legal battle as soon as you have decided that is the worst step you can take. You need to surround yourself with people supporting you that are are as independent as you can find. You will find your family is not, you know, neutral. They tell you things that aren't balanced. You need to find a supportive therapist and a supportive legal advocate, but one that will say, listen, during the first three to six months after you have decided you're going to separate and divorce, your brain is scrambled eggs. You cannot sort through all those emotions and still come up with logical ways to behave. You need to take a break, separate physically, even if you need to say, let's just do a trial separation for a while and see how it goes. That's how you start. You never start with serving, hiring a lawyer and serving somebody at divorce papers at work. That is the worst way to start a divorce. So you start with, with a good therapist that knows what they're doing, that can see kind of both sides and doesn't just jump on your bandwagon and vilify your spouse. You need to understand that good attorneys are objective and will tell you both sides of a story and will look at both sides. When I was young, I didn't know that. That's when that caused the 1997 epiphany where I said, you cannot decide your client is the only one who's got any feelings here. You can't. That's wrong. You need to understand both sides have feelings and treat both of them well. I got I got divorced in France where they actually have legalized one single, one single lawyer who represents both sides. Is that feasible in the U.S.? No. Attorneys cannot, although there is one in Washington State that decided she was going to do that. And I haven't heard how she's doing lately because she came to train us many years ago. But she's the only one I've ever heard of that was brave enough to say, I think one attorney can represent two parties. Our ethical code is really written, you know, our attorneys were created to fight battles. You know, that's how law started. You, you know, hired a gladiator to fight your battle. All our statutes and ethical codes are based on that. So, you know, I like my law license. I want to keep it. So there are strict ethical codes about representing two parties. Mm-hmm. And I have not breached that. And I don't recommend anyone do it unless they really understand the possible consequences. But as a mediator, I can educate and facilitate lots of agreements. And I do it almost every day. There is a 
a new paradigm that was developed in 1990 for attorneys called collaborative law. An attorney in Minneapolis had a horrible two-week divorce trial against another attorney who was best friend, wrecked the friendship, and Stu Webb created, he wrote a letter to the Minnesota Supreme Court on Valentine's Day, 1990, said there's got to be a better way to help families get through this. And they created the collaborative divorce process where there are two attorneys, but the two attorneys shift their paradigm from fighting to helping the couple problem solve. And the attorneys are not allowed to go to court. That's the biggest part of collaborative law. Uh, makes so much sense. So yes. turning back to you and... It sounds like you've come a long, long journey on on many things. And so I'm curious about what I call the the new Q3, so sort of your post-50 years, and how much you seem to have grown and shifted your own perspectives on much of the work that you did do in Q2. Who were you by 50 and how did you get there? What life lessons do you feel you've learned that are relevant to you now? And how much do they inform all of these projects you are now planning for the rest of your Q3? You know, I think when you hit 50, you start to look at your life and look at who you are and what's what your purpose is more. I, you know, went started, you know, going to a pretty liberal unity church and opening my, my mind to spirituality. I put my entire energy into improving family law in Colorado I worked really hard to get collaborative law statute passed in Colorado. I have been training since 2001 in how to do collaborative law and divorce law better. I worked on non-adversarial communications and done lots of studying and classes on relationships and communication. So I understood things better. I mean, when you're raising a family and you're young and you're trying to make money and that's your focus, but as you get older and after 50, I think you start to look at the world as a bigger place and your heart gets bigger. Kind of like when you have a child, your heart gets bigger. When you start to look at how you can help the world, your heart gets bigger. And I think at 50, there's something that around there, even 40, it starts, I think, where you really look at things. And instead of just doing things, you know, get up in the morning, go to bed at night and do it again the next day, you start to see how you can change how you your changing can affect other people. Absolutely. You become much, much, much broader in scope and breadth and vision. Isn't it interesting? And so in this third quarter, what's the most important to you? You you said family, racial equity. Yes. Is anything else that are your top motivators that will drive this uh, next chapter for you? You know, certainly play is a part of it. Yep. I enjoy friends and cooking and family get togethers. I go home on the farm and cook for harvest and planting. So creating get togethers where people laugh and enjoy things is, is really something I enjoy doing. Joy. Um, I mean, curating joy. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I think actually we become much more playful as we age, which is underreported. And we're so much more easygoing, like, oh, that'll work out, you know, or, you know, you know, not not being attached to certain outcomes and not being so attached to saving money, but now giving it away. I mean, there are all kinds of things. You that's, start a big, to loosen that's a big up. flip. That's a big internal flip, don't you find, from having this yeah. need to make it to figuring out how to give it and distribute and who needs yes. it. Yes, yes. 
How do you experience that shift? Well, it's everything from just anybody I that does anything for me, you know, whether they come to my house or I'm out somewhere and somebody does, I just give them a $20 bill. I have a, you know, a stack of cash and I make them smile, you know, make their day better. Even if I tip them on a credit card, I'll still give them a $20 bill. You know, I, I don't know that that's a big joy for me. Tipping more than I need to is a big joy. Finding friends of mine or even acquaintances that really need money for grief counseling or need money for education. I feel good. I actually get what I call downloads where I'll get a download that says, give her $4,000 for a vacation. And so I listen to those and I do what they say. And my friends go, why, what is, where did you get $4,000? I just can't, somebody told me. Wonderful. So, yeah. You're a good, you're a good friend to have. Yeah. You know, I probably would have held on to my money, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but the more, the older I get, the more I see joy in caring for people that way. So that brings me to the future. And if you're looking even a bit further forward into your fourth quarter to round out our talk, what would a successful fourth quarter look like? Have you thought about that? And I love your advice to your son that he should absolutely not hesitate and park you when he needs to. Yeah, I mean, I have thought about finding a, a a retirement community where I could, you know, have friendships and activities more easily. I think I will come to that. I'm a social person. I like to experience new things. I like to laugh. I like to play cards, you know, and I do live alone. I, I've had two divorces and been living alone for a long time. So I don't have a spouse to kind of settle down and hunker down with or to take care of, which I'm grateful, actually. <laughs> I'm not a very good married person. I never was. I, I ah, don't know why. I, I wrote a book on my husband's love. dearly. I wrote yeah. a book on love. I can send it to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm totally open to late love. Although if it was, if it was as wonderful as the other loves in my life, I would say yes. I just found as a married person, I became more miserable and more miserable as I wanted to be me. And my husband's wanted me to be different. So that was hard for me. And after you live alone for 20 years, that might be hard to do anything different. But there's lots of love you can have where you don't live with someone. So I, I believe in my fourth quarter, as I watch how this evolves, I will find a retirement community that, that sounds attractive to me. And whether that'll be in Nebraska, in Denver, or maybe Minneapolis. So you know that I ask all my guests to define a metaphor that wraps up each quarter. What would your four metaphors be? <laughs> well, I got the biggest kick out of doing that. Um, my first <laughs> metaphor for the first quarter was a shovel. <laughs> and I, we all know now what you were shoveling. Yep. Yes, yes. The second was the scales of justice. Mm. The third was a peace sign. And the fourth was a heart. That's lovely. I think you might want to get an art representation of those four quarters on a wall somewhere. That is beautiful. You know, I have the, the friend I'm helping with her grief counseling costs is a beautiful artist. She, she'd do that beautifully. Good idea. Terry, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for sharing your four quarters with us. No problem. Loved it. Thank uh, you. Until next time. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes 
and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better. <laughs>